0: Like sort of understate, or what? This is a land that prays for a hero.
1: The humor of the entire situation
2: suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening
1: to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R one oh two point seven FM.
0: Welcome, welcome to another edition of. Triple R's dose of retrograde futurism, greeting the apocalypse. I'm Adam Grubb. We have in studio tonight, Mr. Kent Goldsworthy on the panels. Got the S in there this oh, week. No, I know, I put double, double F on it. Not Goldsworthy. I was getting the hang of that. Yeah. How are you? I'm really well, good to see you. Oh, this is your last week with us. Yeah, it is. And then Jed McCartney will be back. And he's back from his gavelanting. But it's been enjoyable for it the last been. six weeks. Thanks, really man. Has. No worries at all twice guest, first-time host, David Spratt.
2: Great to be here.
0: Awesome to have you. Thank you. So we'll introduce our guest in a moment, but you've been on the show a couple of times talking about the various reports that you've done into climate change, and the most recent one is called What Lies Beneath? What's the subtitle of that one again?
2: The Understatement of Existential
0: Climate Risk,
2: just to get to the number of the matter.
0: Yeah, and we had you and your co-author Ian Dunlop on a couple of months ago, and that is a report which looks at it's kind of like tries to capture a little bit of what the the morning tea break talk is amongst climate scientists, not so much what the papers say, and you pick it apart in a sadly convincing way and use risk assessment tools and i know that was of all the shows we've ever ever done the one that jed walked away from shaking a little bit just about what our collective future holds well
2: that i count that as a success then
0: yeah yeah now do you want to at the time we couldn't say something about who wrote the intro to that do you want to fill us in on that and and what the response has been to your report well, well
2: I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist and I write about science, so I've got a problem before I start because I'm saying that a lot of the science is too conservative, which it is, and a lot of the scientists say so as well because in yeah. science you can't say something until you can prove it a thousand times. and There's a lot of things that you conjecture might be the case, but and you think that the Arctic might be melting or something might be happening, but until you can prove it, prove it, prove it, you can't say it. So yeah. it's always nice to have somebody who's actually really credible to say these guys might be right. And we're very lucky in getting a guy called Professor... Hans-Joachim Schellenhuber, who's just finished his twenty years as um, director of the Potsdam Institute uh, in Germany, which is you know top shelf. Yeah, uh, he's advisor to Angela Merkel, advisor to the EU, special advisor to the the Pope. So you know he's that sort of guy. Yeah, and he wrote a um, a forward for us saying the uh, guy these guys are out there, but they're right. Yeah, uh, and that has been wonderfully useful because. A lot of other people would say, well, are these guys credible? And we say,
0: don't ask us. Just yeah. ask the guy who wrote the Ford and it opens a lot of doors. One of the world's top yep. climate scientists. Yep, absolutely. Now the UN put out a report yesterday which got a lot of media coverage and it too was saying more or less that the climate science to date is has been conservative when it comes to trying to reach a one point eight degree or one point five degree. Yep. Warning. So we have
2: a thing called the intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which was set up by the UN. So at its top level, a whole lot of diplomats go and vote on what it's going to say and do, which is a problem. So that's, that's the context. But it it's, has a permanent secretariat of techno-savvy people who write their reports. So they don't do new research. They just suck in all the research and then try and synthesise it and, and tell the story. And so they were asked after the Paris... Uh, climate talks two and a half years ago to do a report on 1.5 or 2 degrees and the reason for that is that policymakers have always talked about trying to keep warming to 2 degrees mm. and the small island states are saying hey that's going to drown us and so there was some change in language to say 1.5 to 2 which was to keep the poor guys happy, basically, uh-huh. and then they said, so we want the, the science side of this to produce a report, so that's why how the report came out, so it's subject to all the problems of having ambassadors from 150 countries sign off on the final report, so the Americans and the Saudi Arabians and the Russians are there trying to wheedle the language down, but behind that is a much larger report of more solid science, so that's mm. what we've got to, and um, I mean, look, I think th- the really big story is that They said, if we have one and a bit degrees of warming now. One and a half degrees is 10 to 20 years ago. So we're we're looking at it right down the road. We can see it. And uh, we ain't got a lot of emissions left to do it. So it's right at hand. And they said, if we're going to try and stay anywhere near that, we're going to have to do unprecedented things. We're going to have to change the way our economy works in a way that has never been done before in human history. Now, maybe during the Second World War, we did some similar things. But Mm. the big message is, hey, folks, the the whole game's got to change. And if you don't, some really bad stuff's going to happen. Obviously, at two degrees of warming, it's worse than at one and a half. But one and a half's not good. Um, either at one and a half degrees you'd be lucky to have any coral reefs left in the world at two degrees you absolutely won't yeah. so it's that sort of thing i mean they, they they said that between one and a half and two degrees the rate of crop losses is double the
0: the difference between the, the, one the, and a half and yeah, two is is, is, yeah. is
2: doubling the rate of, cro- of crop loss between one and a half a half and two, the decline in sea fisheries doubles so, you know, look, we're already not on a good slide, but sliding further down makes it a lot worse. So, I mean, they said by two degrees GDP per capita could be down 10% or more. So they're actually, you know,
0: this is... Relative to one percent. I think
2: relative to... to, well, relative, to, to yeah. relative to now. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is really, in the end, climate change is about food and water and people's survival. And they said it, it, it one and a half to two degrees, that difference might make the difference in water security for 400
0: million people.
2: So, you know, we're talking we're talking—we're talking big stuff here.
0: Yeah, like the kind of numbers that just make your brain sort of fry. Yeah, that's right. That you why, can't that's, compute that.
2: That's why I'm not talking too many numbers, but it, it's a lot worse. Well, so and what's, what's got to happen is just really, really big, which we've talked about before. You've got to say, hey, folks, this is the biggest game in town unless we make this, I mean, uh, a guy called Will Steffen who's, you know, one of Australia's leading climate scientists, um, he's on the Climate Council, they put out a, a, a report called Hothouse Earth, a, a scientific paper a few months ago, hmm. saying what we've known for a long time but wasn't really well understood. I think it had a quarter of a million downloads in the first two weeks, the most, the most downloaded scientific paper in, in, in history because it actually crossed into, into popular culture. And they said, look, if we get to two degrees of warming, some of the feedbacks in the system, permafrost and, and decline in, in the efficiency of the Amazon and so on, will actually could actually spiral it out of control. So if you get to a certain point, the system will take off. Yeah. And he, he's you know, a relatively conservative scientist and he said, look, this has got to be the first priority of politics and economics – And maybe we need something like a war economy where you actually go, okay, this is the game in town that will affect whether we're here or not. And I think that's... I mean, the good thing is that 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 conversation is becoming more sober and, and, and more honest.
0: Yeah. I sometimes, like, find it frustrating that we have to make a new show every week. I just feel like we should say that every week. Just put it on record. Like, we need to go to, you know... Be doing everybody's main objective for getting through the day is to make us not destroy the planet, and that requires going to well. It's unfortunate language, but something to the equivalent of war footing in the economy to reduce well, carbon.
2: Look, here's something to warm your heart. There's somebody, um, you know, the Japanese um, poetry form called haiku, which is very
0: defined in the words and the syllables and so uh-huh. on. Somebody wrote a very low carbon emission technology. Haiku. It is.
2: It is. Somebody actually tried to write the IPCC report's main findings in haiku. Yeah. So maybe we could do. Maybe we can do a, a few verses of that each week. And, oh, and, uh,
0: Bring it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we do have to make a new show every week, but it, <laughs> I'm actually really glad we're doing this one, and. Uh, We had Manfred Lenzen on the show last week who was talking about all things embodied as in uh, when you buy something, what what are the upstream carbon emissions and energy and uh, labour associated with those products and those services? And one of the things that we mentioned early on on that show was a report he did in 2007 called the Consuming Australia Report and that looks just at embodied carbon in the average Australian's consumption patterns for the household. And one thing that was surprising in that to me when I first saw it was that 12% of the carbon that we're responsible for as Australian households is to do with building and construction and that as I, I ran this by him today that 's just our homes that 's not all the um, commercial, stuff. commercial stuff because that 's all counted towards the products and services that we consume so that was that 's surprising a large that 's about the equivalent of all the electricity that we use in the home every year is is something like twelve percent of our carbon emissions so we, we we focus all this stuff on oh let 's get solar panels on the roof. Um, Electric cars. Yeah, but it turns, turns out that the building itself is a massive contributor. So to talk about those issues and to talk about what materials are better than others, we have a fantastic guest because he is both a trained architect and a scientist. And that is uh, Robert Crawford, who is a senior lecturer and research fellow in the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne. He has broad research expertise in sustainable design and construction within the built environment, the development and application of life cycle assessment and the environmental assessment of renewable energy technologies. And you're a co-author with Manfred Lenson, who we just mentioned, um, on some papers. But your focus is, seems very much you know, largely in the built environment. So thank you for bringing something of a continuation of last week's talk, but zooming into that topic. Welcome,
1: Rob. It's a absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, really great to have you here. How, how big are Australian homes? Current new houses that we're, we're building uh, are around about the 230 square metre mark on average. Yeah. Um, so that's detached. What, how does hands. that
0: compare globally? Where do we rate in the biggest houses in the world kind of?
1: So piece. if it's if it was a competition, we'd be yeah. coming second. So behind Ooh. the US. Oh, I know, oh, oh, no, They always beat us. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, had, you had to know that would be the answer, <laughs> <then you. laughs>
0: Although I, I thought we were the biggest for a while, right?
1: We were for a while, yeah. Yeah, we, so we know, can't be too far behind. Yeah, come down a little bit. But it's yeah. probably not a competition we want to be winning. No. Um, it, it has a whole, whole range of environmental and resource implications.
0: Yeah. Um, the, even uh it, even um you know life you know quality i think because i don't know I, I, there's a there's a quote all which we used in um a book i co-authored from what's the escape bank robber who wrote Shantaram and then went and lived in a indian uh like oh, yes. um david what's his name robert anyway but he said uh after his experience living in really small houses he think there's an you know owner built out of whatever you can find, <laughs> um, that he thinks there's an inverse relationship between happiness and the size of, a ha- as your, of your home. I'm sure this might not quite add up if you do the math, but, you know, it's not necessarily bigger is better, is it?
1: No, absolutely not. And I think it come, it's not just the size of the house either. There's a whole range of different um, studies that show that, that the whole range of different factors that affect mm-hmm. happiness. Um, yeah. And you get to a certain level of income, for example, and you're not necessarily any happier the more you're earning or the, the more you've got, the bigger your house is and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now,
0: you said that you... Oh, let, maybe we should... Let's, let's pick up this. We'll talk about how Australian houses are built and the pros and cons of that in a minute but let's talk a little bit about the the issue that we were really dealing with last week and that's embodied stuff and in particular embodied carbon this 12 percent of our impact where where is where is how does that end up in our in in our home in the materials embodied in it
1: Mm -hmm. Well, if we think about construction materials, the things that our our houses are built out of, our buildings are built out of, the Mm. the bricks, the concrete, the steel, the glass, aluminium, things like that, um, they need resources um, to manufacture. And and, and processes go into manufacturing those materials. Uh, So those processes require energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and greenhouse gas emissions result from the use of that energy. so basically that's where the the emissions are being released as part of the manufacturing process of those materials that we're using eventually within our our buildings.
0: Yeah so so we go th- go through the list what, what is a what's, a what's a house built out of normally?
1: Well, you know we've got things like timber. You know, framing, steel framing. Mm. Um, we've got bricks. We've got, we've got, um, you know, glass for windows. We've got aluminium window frames. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've got concrete and terracotta roof tiles. Um, a whole range of different mm. materials. We've got plastics. Um, different types of plastics, um, you know, steel used in, in different ways as well and reinforcement for our, our concrete slabs. Mm-hmm. Um, so a broad range of, of materials and probably one of the most complex products we as humans um, have produced. Hmm. So if we look at what's happening around the city, which
2: is a lot of apartment blocks with a, a very large amount of cement, concrete being poured up and down all over the place, Um Cement is responsible to six, for, to, for 6 to 8% of global greenhouse gas
1: emissions altogether. Hmm. This is
2: really big. Why is that the case?
1: Well, um, that comes down to the, the process involved in manufacturing concrete and, and cement. So um, cement is a component of concrete, and um, it is a very energy-intensive process to manufacture um, cement in particular uh, and so it, it effectively is f- most of it is associated with that energy that's needed to produce cement as part of concrete hmm.
2: so you're better off with bricks or cement if you're putting a wall on a house uh well the alternative is concrete i guess um but, but
0: hey, what's the difference oh, okay.
2: i mean i mean the bricks are brick kilns they seem like they have a lot of energy in them too i mean obviously yep. woods are yeah. a, a better bet but yep. I mean, if you go, going, I'm going to build a house, what should I avoid or what should I
1: use? Where do you start thinking about that? Well, I think the way to think about it is, um, you know, the, the more processed materials are, the more processes involved, generally the more energy-intensive and emissions-intensive they are. So some of the more primitive basic materials like stone, wood things like that, um, that that haven't been highly processed are generally the be- better materials because they haven't needed all of that energy to, to transform them into more sophisticated products. Hmm. So things like steel, um, materials like steel take a lot of energy to, to produce. And aluminium. Aluminium, which we Which yes. we clad
2: everything with and hope it doesn't burn these
1: days.
0: <laughs> <It> oh, <does laughs> well, you know absolutely. it's got energy in it because if it does go up, it burns really hot.
1: Yeah. yeah, But I mean, but then it. there's the you know we've got to look at well the ability to recycle these materials yeah. as well. So something like aluminium has a, a high ability oh, yeah. to be recycled. You know, yeah. a lot of it can be recycled, and it takes nowhere near as much energy to recycle it as it does to produce in the first place. Hmm. Um, whereas um, other materials like glass, for example, take a lot of energy to melt down and recycle. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse
0: on 3RRR. We're talking with Robert Crawford, who's a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Architecture and bu- Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne about where the embodied carbon is in our buildings because it turns out that they are responsible for about as much greenhouse gas emissions as the electricity that we use inside them. Now, we bu- say you're building a new house... What are what are your options? You said that if you can build it from simpler, less processed materials, rock and stone, um, as opposed to steel, concrete, and um, aluminium, what, what's what's a what's a good house look like to you?
1: Oh, that's a huge question. Um, Just in, materials in terms of materials, terms, yeah. then um, it's looking at materials that uh, require less replacement over the life of a building. Because yeah. um, if we're replacing materials, yeah. then we're basically reinvesting those that energy and those emissions and everything in every time we replace them. Yeah. Um, and then we've got to dispose of those materials as well. Which or replace
0: entire buildings as I fear some of the newer developments may be done in 30 years. Absolutely.
1: Or... The quality of housing is declining as well. That's an issue. Yeah. Um, but materials that are going to last a long time, that are durable, yeah. um, and that require uh, less resources during their production. Yep. Um, so, Paint a know, picture for me, though, of what this like, house well, is made out of. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know we look at um, certain materials, and all materials that exist in the planet have uh, the ability to be sustainable. We, mm. we, we hear that word used a lot. Yeah. Um, it is probably one of the most misused words uh-huh. um, around at the moment, I think. Um, but... The reality is that materials have the potential to be sustainable um, and that effectively means that they are able to be uh, replenished um, at uh, or faster than the rate at which we're using them. Um, The problem is when we're using materials... Um, at a faster rate than at which they're able to be replenished. Yeah. And so they, become, they are no longer being used sustainably. So this also applies consumption. to the
0: fossil fuels that are used to refine the material, not just the material itself.
1: Exactly. So the fossil fuels that are being used are also not being used sustainably yeah. um, because we're depleting those at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, I guess the, the ideal building would be one where we're actually using... Um, materials regardless of what they are in a sustainable manner in yeah. a manner that allows them to be renewed yeah. um, before we have to replace them uh, and this is at a global level i'm yeah. talking so trees grow
0: yep yep absolutely. mountains form very slowly usually yep. rock yep. and rock and wood <laughs> yeah what about mud and and straw
1: um well yeah any any sort of um natural material like that hmm. that can be replenished on a relatively at a relatively fast rate yeah. is generally a good thing, but saying that you know, um, so we're talking about grasses, timber, you know, so like bamboos a big thing um, grows very fast. You know, it can grow, oh, grow yeah. a metre a day in an ideal climate. Yeah. Um, as long as we're um, so, for example, everyone everyone talks about timber being probably one of the most um, sustainable materials, for want of a better word. Yeah. Um, if Timber's we're using it at a rate. Right. Um, faster than it can be grown, then yeah. it's not a sustainable material. Yeah, right? we're not using it sustainably. Yeah. Um, it's a renewable material, and it always will be because it can grow back yeah. um, in a fairly short period of time. So we need to think about that really yeah. as well. You know, how fast are we using these materials? How fast are they being replenished? Hmm. And are we are we going to deplete them? Because that's really the issue. Yeah, um, we don't want to deplete materials because then we just run out and we've got nothing left to to use to build our houses. Yeah.
2: So. I was in Europe last year and took a train through Holland and all along the train track were these amazing machines just devouring concrete and seemingly recycling everything in the country uh, from old buildings. I mean, concrete, glass, everything was being redone. You see a building bought, bought down here and it just seems to be carved off in, in a truck for landfill. Why don't we recycle materials the way they do in Europe? Is it, is it, does it need a price? Is it a cultural thing? What is it?
1: Um, well, a number of different things. I think we've got a lot of land here. We've got a lot of sp- space to dispose of materials. Um, and so we, uh, our disposal, uh, costs of disposal are fairly low compared to a lot of other countries, so it's easier to do it. Um, also, we don't put as much value on, on existing materials and recycled materials. Uh, we don't necessarily have the equipment um, and the technology like some other countries do for recycling materials. So what would the government have to do to change that? Uh, well, I think, you know, obviously putting greater value on those existing materials is one of the first things. So uh, increasing the cost of disposal, so making it, making it less um, easy to dispose of materials uh, and more value in reusing them. So, you know, increasing, maybe increasing the, the price of existing materials to reflect the true value of them. Mm. Um, and so reusing and recycling materials becomes uh, a greater priority, you know, more important to do.
0: Theoretically, can straw bale or timber houses draw down carbon from the atmosphere?
1: Uh, well, what, what, what can happen is during the growth of those materials, they can sequester carbon. Mm. Right, so they, they store that carbon and effectively take it out of the atmosphere um, until those materials end up back in landfill and then start decomposing and releasing it back into the atmosphere. Yep. If those materials are being used and storing that carbon for a um, hundred years or more, it's considered long-term carbon storage. Mm-hmm. All right. And so that's going to, you know, if we can store carbon for the next 100 years, it's going to at least delay the issues that we've been talking about um, earlier tonight with approaching that, that one and a half or two degrees. Mm.
0: My friend and former guest of the show, Joel Meadows, owner built a house out of straw and mud, and it does have a concrete um, base, so, and the roof line is curved and it's north-facing and it tracks the sun, and we'll talk about passive solar design in a second. Um, Previously to building it, he was renting a very old house in Castlemaine and he says it's very much the worst thing that he's ever done for the environment. Would you agree with that, even if you try and do it well, recycled materials, a lot of it?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, any any activity, any construction um, has an impact on the environment. We haven't got to the point... Um, well actually if we've got to it we've gone away from it and we're going further away from it where where our buildings are actually good for the environment we've got a long way to go Uh, we need to get there um, and we know the the priority in in trying to do that Um, but with all the technology we're throwing into our buildings the the complexity of the materials that we're using Mm -hmm. now um, became more complex and more involved and more processed Mm -hmm. than we've had in the past it's making things worse not better
0: Mm -hmm. Um, the if if we so in his case he thought if he just kept renting a small house that would be a better thing size of building is as important as what you use correct
1: absolutely because the The size of our buildings has uh, an effect on the environment in a range of different ways. So it's not just about the amount of materials we use in constructing it, but it also affects how much energy we need to heat and cool that space and light that space, how much furniture we need to fill it or we typically use to fill it. Um, If we've got two living spaces, we tend to have two TVs, for example, two couches. So it just... Accentuates the amount of resources that we need mm. to fill a, a house and, and use use a house. Yeah. yeah.
0: So there's a there's a kind of cultural backlash maybe against the massive home with the tiny house movement. But what is the general trend for house sizes in Australia? We said it's big and it's no longer as big as the Americans. But is it still is it declining? Has has a turning point been reached?
1: Uh, about five years ago, we got to a peak um, yeah. and that was about 240 square metres for a brand new detached house, yeah. um, which is still what we typically tend to build most of what we build. We've we've gone back to about 230 square metres now for a detached okay. house. Um, yep. Apartments have um, are around about the hun- uh, 130 to 150 square metre marks. So on average, we're about 190 square metres for a new building Yeah, um, on average, so apartments, units, houses and so forth. Yeah. Um, our houses, uh, so if we go back to the 1950s, yeah. um, the average size house was 100 square metres. Right. Right. Um, compared to the 230 square metres now for the average sized house. Yeah. So we've more than doubled the size of our houses. At the same time, we have uh, around about half the number of people that live in each of those houses. Mm -hmm. So instead of about 4.5 people per house, we've now got about 2.3 people per house.
0: And might it also be true that we spend less time in those houses? I'm not sure. Maybe we do spend more time with our home entertainment systems, but people are working longer hours.
2: But we're not cooking in them anymore.
0: That's right. We're going out
2: and eating out and getting people to deliver it and uh, conducting our social life outside the the house rather than in it. We might have a kitchen soon, maybe.
0: Yeah. And, tra- yeah.
2: and traveling more, leaving earlier and getting
0: home later. I suspect we're using them less. Yeah. So by all those indicators, the size of the house, how many people in it, and how much time they spend in it, it's like it, that. Ex- that's even makes the
1: size of our house even more ridiculous. Oh, exactly. It's a completely inefficient uh, waste of, of resources. Yeah. You know, or use of resources. Yeah.
0: You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs>
2: so how can we do them differently there's a lot of apartments that are going to keep on being built i read that we can make cement different ways we can use polymer cements we can use glass i mean can we have the emissions from from cement manufacturing what would it take to do that
1: uh, absolutely there's there's a lot of work that's gone into looking at alternatives to cement in okay. concrete um, so um, things like using fly ash. Um, What's that? F- so fly ash is a, a basically a waste product or byproduct of the electricity production process or okay. generation for process. Coal. Yep. Yeah. yep. Okay. Um, blast furnace slag is another replacement for cement that comes out from the, the steel production process. Mm. And we can use them. They've got similar qualities to cement. We can replace some of the cement in concrete yep. mm-hmm. with those materials. And so they're waste products that otherwise be be used for um, nothing or just you know, disposed of. Um, so we're reducing the the emissions and the energy use associated with concrete and um, to a, a degree. And are we using them? Absolutely, yeah. So it's not a, a large part of the market yet in, in terms of the amount of uh, concrete that we're using. We use a lot of concrete um, annually in construction, but it's becoming um, used... More and more and, um, but,
2: and what can we do to make sure more and more of them is used and less cements used in terms of emissions
1: what what's going to drive the change um, well you know a whole range of things so um, obviously policy is a is an important thing um, uh, right certain uh, rating systems and things like that, which can encourage building owners and, and builders to strive for what we might call greener buildings or more, more environmentally friendly buildings. Um, and so they can then you know, use that as uh, something that demonstrates their buildings performing better than the average one um, and that can have a competitive advantage then for them. Yep. Hey,
0: you draw, you, you, you've stayed back, and thank you for this, from going home to Geelong today. And that means that you drive through a lot of um, new suburbs and this year, according to an article in the ABC yesterday, there have been 17 new suburbs added to the outer north and west of Melbourne. Plumpton, Wallet, Wyndham Vale, Cloverton. They sound very delightful in English. And <laughs> They've cho- all
2: got lakes cho- and meadows and yeah. vistas
0: in their names. But they're all built where they filmed Mad Max. <laughs> yes, they are. Um, Now, what you would be seeing, and this is what I see, is like houses with black roofs, no eaves, brick veneer, so that means the thermal mass is on the outside of the building rather than on the inside, and oriented wherever they happen to face towards the road rather than towards the sun. Does that drive you mad as an architect interested in sustainability? What is wrong with that and what can we do better?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think you've touched on all of the a lot of the major points in terms of what's wrong with our housing. Um, we, the, the problem is a lot of our housing is built by what we might call developers. Um, they are not um, necessarily trained architects, they don't necessarily have trained architects on board, and we find that they don't care as much about the environmental performance. Of the buildings, yeah. uh, as much as they might about the the, you know, the profit that they're making out of each one and the, the speed at which those buildings can be constructed. Yeah. So, and that's affecting the quality of them, yeah. not just from a physical point of view, but also from an environmental point of view. Um, so, and that affects how people feel within them, so that the comfort, occupant comfort of our buildings. Yeah. So, you know,
0: well, I did a garden for someone in Tarnit in New House, and when they moved in, the guy got allergies for the first times in his house in his life from all the off gassing of chemicals. Yeah, yeah, that's another
1: yeah. huge impact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but. The, um, you know, not having eaves, so not being able to protect the building from heating up in summer is, mm. is really bad. Um, the bad or poor orientation, so if we don't orient our buildings towards the sun to capture it, then the houses can also be very cold in winter and yeah. they can grow mould and, and have other health impacts as yeah. well. And there's a whole science around this, the Absolutely. passive
0: solar design stuff.
1: Yeah, That's yeah, something. well, I mean, passive, so it's 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 been done for for centuries, yeah. you know, it's nothing new it's very basic, yeah. orienting our, our buildings um, to basically um, capture sunshine to capture um, ventilation cross ventilation um, to, to make them comfortable, you know, it's not a difficult thing to do, but we tend to um, make it difficult for ourselves, I think
0: mm. Have, Did you build your house? Or um, did you not, not physically no,
1: but it, I've, I've uh, yeah. had an influence a little bit of an influence over the the design of it Uh, Mm -hmm. it performs actually I get my energy bills every month and um, you know for for, a house of four or five people it's it's performing at about the amount of energy that one person uses on average Uh so you know it performs fairly well and it's nothing it's um, it is a, a volume house, um, but it's, it, we've done simple things about orientation, insulation, glazing, really simple, cheap mm. things to do that make yeah. it perform that much better very easily.
0: So I don't know the terminology, but volume means it's made by a company that
1: puts uh, One of the large builders, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and most of the houses we build in Australia are built by, by a very small number of builders. Yeah. Um, we build uh, around about a bit over 10,000 houses per month yeah. in Australia. Right, yeah, staggering figure. And there's My about there's about ten. We've got about ten million houses um, in in Australia. So a lot
2: of standard design, standard materials, and they don't want to vary them.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's easy just to keep doing the, the way we, the things we the way we've done them for for, for years and years. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. But even within that, um, those limitations of working with, with those folks, you're able to double-glaze. And I guess one thing that is hard to change is orientation, is it? Because a lot of house blocks these days are about... Three percent bigger than the size of the future house. The house, yeah, touches, but,
2: the house yeah. touches the fence on three sides. The, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Ba- the back garden with the veggies and the running around is long
1: gone. Yeah. Well, the land, I mean, the land developers have a lot of lot of say in that. Um, I think with the subdivision, mm. um, so working with councils um, to actually orient the blocks the right way, so we can build the houses the right way. So we want our houses running east west. Yes. So we've got maximum um, frontage onto the north. Yep. Uh, yeah. That's that's the first that's the first thing we need to do because mm-hmm. once the subdivision done, The blocks are facing the wrong way. Then we're very limited with what we can do with the house. Yeah. Um, but then you've got to build and design within the context of that. So when you do have a block, then you think about okay, well, where's the sun? You know, yeah. put your lounge room and living areas towards the north because that's where you want the sun.
0: Mm-hmm. Now there are like regulations and requirements to do with having certain. You know, you've got to tick certain environmental um, checkboxes, and I see all these terribly <laughs> designed houses with uh, solar hot water on them and things like that. It, is any of the things that you're talking about, passive solar um, orientation, that kind of thing, is that, in, is that considered anywhere in the legislation?
1: Uh, we, we do have uh, some aspects of building regulations that deal with uh, the energy performance of our buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it tends to focus on heating and cooling um, so, uh, the therm- what we call the thermal performance of our building envelope. Yeah. Um, so it sets standards for how much, effectively, how much energy uh, our buildings should use as a maximum. Yeah. Um, and we have a star rating system, and many of uh, listeners have probably heard of the six star, um, what we call the six star standard, where all of our houses need to achieve at least a six star rating, mm. uh, which is effectively telling you that you-, you should only be using a certain amount of energy. Um, in that house on an annual basis, yeah yep. and is
0: that mostly about insulation what?
1: yeah so it 's about the thermal performance of the envelope exactly so it 's about uh, mm-hmm. insulating the envelope and it 's not just insulation but it 's also the glazing is, the, that's the, just outside, the outside, outside of the house, of the house yeah, okay. the wall, outside walls of the house and the roof yeah um, but it 's also about the glazing that you use
0: which it, you know, it, is itself form. insulating yeah. or that 's about how much energy gets in um, as
1: well it 's about energy in and out okay so single glazing is very um, Poor performing compared to double glazing, just okay. two panes of glass basically. Yep. So again, it's insulation really. Yep.
0: So it can. So that's a really important thing that the that it considers. But it seems a bit one dimensional because does it consider thermal mass? Which for those that um, don't know and are listening, that's like how you store heat inside, usually brick or concrete
2: inside concrete the house floors, the sun shines on that sort of yeah, thing it, yeah it does
1: affect it, it does consider the effect of thermal mass on the need for, for energy for heating and cooling yeah, yeah absolutely
0: yeah okay well that's good and does it but does it consider orientation and, and solar passive solar stuff
1: um, only in as much it doesn't it doesn't prescribe particular orientation but mm. only in as much as that good orientation will uh, allow you to increase the star rating easily yeah. Or more easily okay, so than poor orientation. So okay. it doesn't make it easy to does achieve easier the, the standards. Yeah. All right. Yeah.
0: So, in some ways, it is built in. Does it consider yeah. the embodied energy in, and carbon in the materials? Absolutely not. No. Yeah. And
1: that's one thing that we've been, I've been advocating for for 20 odd years now. Yeah. Um, is that it's, and Is it's Now we know that our buildings are becoming much more energy efficient in terms of their operation. We're mm-hmm. using less energy to, to run them. Yeah. The embodied energy component, so the energy that goes into making all the materials, is becoming yeah. more significant. Um, proportionately so we now need to really start thinking about how we're going to regulate that and and control that and obviously reduce the amount of energy that goes into our buildings over their full life Mm.
0: are you getting any any nibbles on your 20 years you said you've been that's a
1: you're yeah, well it's a, it's, a, it's a more challenging thing um, it's it's uh, less tangible I guess because all this energy is occurring elsewhere outside of the building you know it's, most of it sort of happens in manufacturing plants and at the mine and things like that so
0: so it's harder to so, communicate to policymakers the significance of it
1: yeah and it's it's harder to quantify yeah. um, it is harder to get a feel for what the real figures are and we've done a lot of research in that area um, and which shows that it's very substantial you know a, a typical house um, the energy embodied in it is equivalent to driving around Australia in a typical car about 32 times, you know, or 500 barrels of oil. So doing the That's full just, lap of the coast. Exactly. Huh. Yeah, well, that, yeah, yeah, that really energy. helps put, yeah, put yeah. it in perspective.
0: Yeah. And it must be roughly, over the lifetime of that building, the equivalent of all the electricity that it uses, if um, Manfred's um, yep. your figures are correct.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. it's around about it's around equivalent to the amount of energy that we need to actually run our houses for it's for the yeah, whole life, it's life.
2: So, is this in the domain of state or federal governments mainly to change this? Uh,
1: I, I think. Well, our building regulations are typically are national; they're a national mm-hmm. thing. So, um, I think it would come in there. And it needs it's a, it needs to be. Oh, it's a global issue, really.
2: So, so there's some likelihood you might have a change of government federally before too long and the new housing minister comes in and says oh, i'm hiring you to lead this change you sit down and you've given six months to put four four things on the table four big things that the government's going to do what are they going to be
1: uh well i think we need to invest um, a lot more in research into finding new materials yep. you know, that's um, what, we can't continue using the materials we're using because they are not materials that are being used sustainably they're not necessarily renewable materials what about
0: like mud and straw and things that people have been you know playing around with well since time immemorial but you know with a bit of a you know since the 70s and owner builders yep yep Uh, are they proven and they are they good
1: uh, well, they Not they are they are potential materials that we could be using. They're definitely um, there are issues, obviously, with the speed of construction, the cost of construction, the yep. the need for particular skills yeah. to build out of those materials. Okay. So, so, so new, research but, new materials. Yeah. Number two, yep. um, we obviously need uh, to integrate these sorts of things into regulations and and, and, and particular uh, particularly regulations to. Um, Basically, force people into so
2: specify minimum standards to make this stuff happen.
1: Exactly, or at least um, get people quantifying and working out, you know how how significant are these for particular projects, and then looking at ways of reducing the impact associated with the energy and, and other resources embodied in the materials that they're using. All right, one more strike. What's what's the third one? Um, I, I think um, we need to put greater value on the existing materials that we've got. We've got a lot of materials in our existing buildings. Um, a lot of it's going to landfill. Mm. Um, so what the so Europeans are
2: doing, where they put value on, on recycling it and make exactly. it compulsory,
1: basically. Yeah, yeah. Capturing the value that's in those materials we've already got. Good. We solved the problem. Can I just throw in a, um, a potentially a vested interest type question? How would you rate current
0: education at tertiary le- uh, level for the sorts of people who are going to have to do this research or to do this rethinking on policy and so on?
1: Yep. Um, uh, these, these issues are um, emerging they're not something that's been taught at university level for many, many decades, um, as integral to university courses. Um, I know that, that um, at the Mal- University of Melbourne, where we've got a range of different subjects that cover this sort of stuff, um, and we value the importance of our graduates in going out and actually having the skills to be able to actually use um, this knowledge to help inform the buildings of the future. Uh, I think it's absolutely critical. Um more probably more critical than anything really um even the professional skills that they need um, the traditional, traditional professional skills that they need um, because uh, if you don't have a, a, a planet then there's no jobs is there i mean it's you know the old, the old saying so mm. yep. um
0: as an architect, I know you have a vested interest and in, even though um you're you know, holistic thinking kind of guy into wanting us to design better buildings and build better buildings, better materials, but also just um, living and making do with the ones we have and fixing them up is a pretty good approach, too. Yeah. Well, we've been talking tonight with Rob Crawford uh, about all things embodied carbon and the environmental impacts of building, which are remote, remarkably less about how we run them, although that's part of it, but what they're built out of. Thanks for bringing a very broad um, perspective of an architect and someone that's studied the science and the life cycle analysis of the materials. It was really great to have you on. That's a pleasure. Thank you. And Kent Goldsworthy, thank you for being with us for the last six weeks. It has been a genuine pleasure. Made a difference to my Tuesdays, that's for sure. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.